What's up, Jersey? Let's welcome them in with us today. So I want to talk from this subject in our time together, family. It takes what it takes. It takes what it takes. Family, recently, one of, if not the greatest coach in the history of college football, Nick Saban made an announcement that he was retiring from the career, or dare I say, even calling of coaching. And although I wasn't a student athlete that played for him, I was a leader that learned from him as I watched from afar his ability to consistently create a culture of greatness. You may not like the Alabama Crimson Tide. You may, <laughs> you may not prefer the Alabama Crimson Tide. You may not even like or prefer Nick Saban. But anyone who is intellectually honest and objective cannot deny greatness. And he has consistently created a culture of greatness. And one day I had the opportunity not just to learn from him from afar, but to learn up close. I was invited to be a part of a cohort of pastors who actually had the opportunity to go to the facility there in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and be in a setting where we had the opportunity to hear him talk a bit about life and, and leadership. And during that session, he said something that was so impactful that it became unforgettable. He said this, if you want to be great, you don't have many options. It takes what it takes. In other words, greatness never goes on sale. It costs what it costs. It takes what it takes. And those who want to possess it must be willing to pay the price for it. Success is not owned. It's rented. And the rent is due every day. And this axiom not only applies to the game of football, it applies to the game of life. Jesus says something similar to those of us who want to experience greatness in one of the most important and consequential areas of our life. He says this to those of us who are serious about spiritual greatness. To whomsoever much is given... Much will be required. There's a price. He says this, if anyone wants to experience elevation or evolution, meaning they want to become my disciple, they must first of all deny themselves. Meaning you must suppress an inferior want so you can possess a superior want. Did you hear what I said? Self-denial doesn't mean you don't want that. Self-denial means you want this more. So you will tell an inferior desire that you got to stay in place so that I can possess a superior desire. It's like I want company, but I want peace more. Let me go to this side. Did you hear what I said? 
I want success, but I want my standards more. It, it, it is a revelation that all wants are not created equal, and it becomes essential for us to suppress inferior wants so we can possess superior wants. If any man will follow me, let him first of all deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus here is articulating something. Can I be vulnerable here? Can I be vulnerable here? Jesus here is articulating something about the reality of evolution and transformation that makes me very uncomfortable. I'm a pastor preaching this and I wrestled with this all week because honestly once I got this revelation it was still a it is still a revelation that I wrestle with emotionally I understand it theologically but I wrestle with it emotionally because what the text teaches us is that some evolution and some transformation and some elevation only comes on the other side of adversity. You see, I would, I would respond the same way y'all responded too. That's, that's what, did you hear what I just said? It, it is, it is family. It is, it is what is called in some circles passive spiritual growth. See, all month we've been talking about spiritual growth but we've been talking about active spiritual growth. What's that, Darius? That is the spiritual growth that is produced by my activity. So I engage in the spiritual disciplines of prayer and fasting and solitude, the study of scripture, the gathering for corporate worship, biblical meditation, biblical practicing of silence. These are all spiritual disciplines or exercises that Dallas Willard calls means of grace, things that God uses to help grow us spiritually. But watch this. These are things we choose to do. These are things we do. Somebody say active. Passive spiritual growth, this is a term used in contemplative spirituality. Passive spiritual growth is not the spiritual growth that comes from what you do. Are y'all okay? I don't know if you're about to be after I say this. It is the spiritual growth that comes not from what you do. It's the spiritual growth that comes from what's done to you. Now, I did think I was going to get more amens than that. I choose active spiritual growth. I choose to pray. I choose to study scripture. I choose to come and worship corporately with God's people. I choose to practice biblical meditation. I choose to fast. That's active spiritual growth. I choose. But with passive spiritual growth, it chooses you. I choose prayer. I don't choose betrayal. Did you hear what I just said? I choose the study of scripture. I don't choose exploitation. I don't choose being disrespected. I don't choose a diagnosis. I don't choose the loss of a job. I don't choose the loss of a loved one. I don't choose the downturn in an economy. I choose to pray. I don't choose to suffer. And 
And the Bible is clear in communicating that this avenue for our formation is not an optional avenue. See, in my theological uh, uh, um, 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 infancy, what I thought was adversity was only a, a result of the absence of wisdom. That if I made enough wise decisions, then I would be able to avoid adversity. And I'm not saying that's untrue. Because there is some wisdom that does serve as a wall that protects us from unnecessary adversity. But I am saying that there are some things that are chosen for you that no matter what wall of wisdom you put up, it'll scale the wall. You can eat the right things and work out and exercise. Y'all aren't talking to me. And something will scale that wall. You can be good to people and generous to people and great to people and helpful for, to people and Judas still betray you. Are y'all following me? Jesus got betrayed. He managed the relationship perfectly. He always said to Judas what needed to be said. He always said it when it needed to be said. He always said it how it needed to be said. He always said it where it needed to be said. He was generous to Judas. He gave a platform to Judas. We wouldn't even know Judas if it wasn't for Jesus. Come on. His elevation was attached to his association with Jesus. And Jesus did all of that. And Judas still betrayed him. So if that happens to Jesus, what makes you think if you text enough, call enough, pay them enough, show up enough, give them enough, that they're going to reciprocate in kind? Because how people treat you is not just an indication of your character. How people treat you is an indication of their character. And there is no amount of generosity that will make bad character become good character. It's not the stuff we choose. It's the stuff that chooses us. It's when life is lifing. It's not all the stuff God does, but it's all the stuff God uses. It's when you're looking at someone you love and you say, why, why is that happening to my baby? Not my child. Lord, me, not them. Not my mama. Not right now. Lord, me, not them. Lord, not the job. Not right now. Now, I don't really like it, but now at the time. <laughs> the way my life is set up right now. Just hold up. <laughs> calm down, Jesus. Just calm. Relax. You don't choose it. Life chooses you. Job didn't choose his suffering. 
he didn't even have a say in it. God didn't even include him in the conversation. The Bible is clear how this experience comes about. It says Satan and God were having a conversation. And God said, have you considered my servant Job? Job didn't choose any of that. He didn't choose to get sick. He didn't choose to lose his children. He didn't choose to lose his business. He didn't choose to have a wife who got caregiver fatigue and told him, curse God and die. It's passive spiritual growth. And this is what's hard for me to swallow. Because I assumed in my theological infancy that all growth came from instruction. So if I just read enough and pray enough and study enough, then I'll grow. But God has shown me through scriptures and through experience, there's another way. I use instruction, but I also use adversity. And Darius, if you're honest, your quantum leaps Your greatest transformations has come on the other side of what you don't want to ever experience again. And so I realized through my own experience as a pastor how ill-equipped I was to handle this part of life. Because I was taught binding, loosing, resisting. Now I realize I can rebuke the enemy. I can't rebuke life. Did you hear what I just said? And so, are y'all following me? And, 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 and so, what I learned from my personal experience is something that I need to be responsible for as a pastor, no matter how uncomfortable I am personally, because it is not my preferred way of growth. But I realize that in religious spaces, we've taught you how to sow. We've taught you how to serve. We've taught you how to shout. But we have not taught you how to suffer. So when life starts lifing, we are ill-equipped. We don't have the stamina to stand. See, sometimes the strategy is to stand. I'm going to say that one more time. Sometimes the strategy is to stand. Sometimes the strategy is to not die. Sometimes the strategy is to live. Where you get that from, Darius? Paul says, having done all to stand. When you don't know what to do, when there's no blueprint, when there's no strategy, you look up, you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'll live and not die to declare the works of the Lord. You look the storm in the face and you say, one of us is going quit first and it's not gonna be me I may cry but I'm not quitting and I may fold but I'm not quitting I may bend but I'm not quitting 
We have not been taught to suffer. Well, pastor, where's the gospel in this? This doesn't feel like gospel. This doesn't, gospel means good news. This doesn't sound like good news to me. Here's the good news. The good news about the gospel is this. The Christian's victory isn't tied to always avoiding. The Christian's victory is also tied to overcoming what I can't avoid. So sometimes I go in the lion's den, but God bring me out. Sometimes I go in the fiery furnace, but God bring me out. This for all my Baptist members here. Sometimes I go in the tomb and I stay there all day Friday, all night Saturday night, but early Sunday morning. So all we do is win. All we do is win. All we do is win. We cry, but we still win. And we get sad, but we still win. And we get discouraged, but we still win. And I may go in, but don't you take your eye off me. Because sooner or later, the same God that let me go in is going to snatch me out. Some evolution is on the other side of adversity. And the text we read in Acts is an amazing example of what I'm trying to articulate. In this particular passage, we get exposed here to some motive behind the God's handling of some madness in our life. This text in Acts 9 exposes us to one of the most epic evolutions in Scripture. It, it exposes us to the transformation of a person named Saul who becomes the Apostle Paul, who's responsible for two-thirds of the letters that are written in the New Testament. So two-thirds of the letters, the book of Romans, is an epistle Paul writes to believers in Rome. First and second Corinthians are two letters Paul writes to believers in Corinth. Am I making sense? Ephesians is a letter Paul writes to believers in Ephesus. Colossians, Colossae, Thessalonians, Thessalonica, Philippians, Philippi. Am I making sense? Most of what you see in the New Testament. First Timothy, his first letter to Timothy. Second Timothy, his second letter to Timothy. Titus, his letter to Titus, who's an elder. He appoints to oversee the planning of churches in Crete. It's Paul. He didn't, start out the, he didn't start out that way, though. You want to know how he started out? Yeah, he started in Acts chapter number 7, in verse number 58. It, you see something. The Bible says that they cast uh, him, meaning Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. Stephen was a disciple of Jesus. And as Stephen is being stoned, he is preaching. And as he's preaching, I'm not going to bother this, but I just get I just a little bit as he's preaching. Oh, my. As he's preaching, Marcus, as he's preaching, he sees a vision. As he's being stoned and preaching, he sees a vision. And the text says, Marcus, he, he sees Jesus standing on the right hand of the father. Here's why that's significant. 
All the times that Jesus is mentioned, post-resurrection, he's not standing. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. But when people started messing with his child, he stood up. I don't know who needs to hear this, but Jesus will stand up over you. Wait a minute, take your mouth off of him. Don't make me stand up. Don't make him get out of his seat. But the text says, as he's being stoned, listen to what happens. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So he's complicit. He wasn't throwing them stones, but he wasn't stopping them. And so he goes from an observer in chapter 7 to a participator in chapter 9. Because chapter 9 verse 1 says he's breathing murderous threats. Y'all missed it? Verse 1 says he's he's breathing out murderous threats. Not just empty threats. Threats of murder. Against the Lord's disciples. Because if you stay around it long enough, you become it. Come on here. See, I don't have time to deal with this. I don't have time to deal with this. Because in chapter 7, he's an observer. In chapter 9, he's a participator. Because all growth isn't positive evolution. Y'all not... This is why some of you have to give yourself a break when you discover somebody you're with has become a different version of themselves. And you're wondering like, what did I miss? And how did this happen? Sometimes your discernment wasn't off, their development was off. They became a worse version of themselves. We think time makes people better. Sometimes time makes people worse and you can't predict who somebody's going to become. You can choose based on who they are, but you can't predict who they're going to become. Life changes people in ways you can't predict. So he goes from observing it to participating in it. And the text says he starts asking the high priest for letters, for permission, so that if he ran into anybody that was a follower of the way, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. This is vile. This is sinister. This is evil. And this is the man who wrote two-thirds
This is the man that says where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. This is a man that says if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Behold, old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is the man that said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is a man who said, my God shall supply all of my needs. It was that man. How does this man become that man? Text shows us how this man becomes that man. As he's on his way to Damascus, the Bible says, watch this, he's on his way to Damascus, and the Bible says, all of a sudden, there's this flash of light. He's knocked off of his horse, and the flash of light makes him blind. So he's on his way to Damascus. And then all of a sudden, in a flash, something happens that knocks him down. Have you ever been on your way to your Damascus? Damascus can represent wherever you're trying to go. You just drinking your water and minding your business. That's it. I'm just trying to live my life. I'm just trying to chase my dreams. I'm trying to carry out my calling. I'm trying to accomplish my purpose. That's it. I'm trying to get to Damascus relationally, Damascus professionally. That's my desire destination. And all of a sudden, there's this interruption. And it's an interruption of inconvenience. God, don't you know I'm trying to get somewhere? Not this now. Not, not this and not now. And God interrupts because he says, you're going to the right place, Saul, because you're going to make it to Damascus. But Saul not going. Did you hear what I just said? He stops him. He said, no, no I got to stop this. No, no, no. You, you want to go to the right place? And somebody's going. It's not Saul. This is as far as Saul can go. All this time you've been improving Saul. You've been tweaking Saul. You've been adjusting Saul. You've been elevating Saul. But now I need you to shed Saul. You are not in tweaking season. You are in shedding season. God's saying that version of you is an inferior version of you that you must be willing to shed because that version can't go there. Because if that version gets to Damascus, they're not going to manage Damascus properly. I need Saul in Damascus. I, don't, I need Paul in Damascus, not Saul. I need Paul there. Because Saul wants to go there for the wrong reasons. So he's knocked off his horse in a flash. And that's how life can happen. Flash. Your normal flow of life. Text message, flash. Email, flash. Phone call, flash. Watch text. And when he's on the ground, the Bible says the Lord speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? Now, I'm wondering why the Lord didn't say this when he's on the horse. Yeah. 
because it's hard to hear when you're on a high horse. You don't listen the same when you're on a high horse. You're not open when you're on a high horse. And God's like, I would have had this conversation with you on the horse if you've been willing to hear this conversation on the horse. But it seems like the only time you're open to hearing hard truths. You can hear no weapon formed against you shall prosper on the horse. You'll hear you're more than a conqueror on the horse. But it's hard to hear why you're persecuting me on the horse. And Saul says in verse 5, who are you, Lord? Who are you? He don't even know what he's doing. Because sometimes it takes being knocked off the horse to see what you didn't see you were doing. Did you hear what I just said? See, this, this, is, see, this, this is so important. And this is, what, this is what is perturbing to me. I'm just being vulnerable. It's, I'm pertur- it's perturbing to me, but it's true. Because what, what happens here is God is forcing a kind of growth that Saul doesn't think he need. Because when you look at his socioeconomic status, he's doing way better than most. If you study Paul's background, he spoke between seven and 14 languages. He was trained under one of the most uh, uh, famous rabbis during this particular era in history, a rabbi named Gamaliel. He's a Hebrew, but he was a Roman citizen, trained at the University of Tarsus. He was such an intellectual asset that when uh, when, uh, two apostles, Peter and him, got ready to go on missionary journeys, they sent Peter to the Jews, but they sent Paul to the Gentiles. So he goes to places, um, to the Agoria. He goes to the marketplace in Greece. He goes up on Mars Hill where the philosophers, come on, and, 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 and the aristocrats are, are just talking and pontificating about life. And the Bible says he's quoting their poets. So he's doing better than most. So in his mind, he's probably thinking, how much, growing you want, how much more growing you want me to do? I know you want me to, to be humble, but how much more humility you want me to have? I mean, God, I, I guess Paul's the only one. Have you ever felt like, okay, now, how much more broken you want me to be? I didn't even know you could be this broken. Now, I feel like you're taking me through something, and I'm, I'm, I'm becoming more broken than this. He says, because you don't get to set your spiritual growth goals. You can set your other ones. I set this one. (laughs) And I send what I need to send, and I allow what needs to be allowed, or I use what I need to use to get you to a growth goal, because your growth goal isn't about your life. It's about your purpose. You know how much you need to grow to be happy. I know how much you need to grow to be used. I'm done. That's so strong. 
He said, so this is why what I'm doing in your life don't make sense. It's because I'm doing what I'm doing. Because I know who you need to be. To be used the way I'm about to use you in this next chapter of my story for your life. Paul heard Stephen preach the word. He heard instruction. And it didn't change him. He said, and watch the man be stoned while he was preaching. It didn't change him. But when God knocked him off that horse, he became a version of himself that he wouldn't come any other way. Here's where I am. I think integrity is authenticity, not perfection. Here's where I am. I'm not where David was, but I understand what David meant when he said it was good that I was afflicted. I want to, <laughs> but when I look at my life, my greatest growth came on the other side of my greatest pain. Now here's what's interesting. The pain doesn't produce the growth. So all, when Paul was blind, he got instruction. I don't even have time. He, he got instruction because there was a man in Damascus named Ananias. God speaks to Ananias in a dream and says, I want you to go pray and help this man, Paul. Remember now when Paul's blind, God tells him, get up, go to Damascus, then I'm going to tell you what to do. So Paul's got to obey. He's got to submit in suffering to, to extract the asset from adversity. If, if he doesn't obey, he doesn't avoid suffering. He just suffer for nothing. And because I hate suffering, I refuse to suffer for nothing. If I'm going to sow in tears, I will reap in joy. Pastor, how do I extract the asset? Here it is. Number one. I got to address, we have to address our anger. Because anger is our response to injustice. And when life throws us something we don't deserve, the human response is anger. That doesn't mean you're weak, it means you're human. But the scriptures teach us how to manage anger. Be angry, but sin not. Don't let the anger push you to behave in a way that complicates your suffering. So I'm already suffering in one area. Now I'm hurt and angry. And I go out and do something in my anger. So now I got two sets of problems. I got the problem I was dealing with that made me angry. Now I got the problem I created because I was angry. So if you hate what you have, refuse to make it worse. Number two, we got to arrest our words because whatever area I'm suffering in is an area where I'm suffering in, but how I speak about what I'm going through determines whether or not I start suffering mentally. So I can be going through something financially, but my words can cause me to start going through something emotionally. So now I'm compounding my problems, not just by what I do in anger, but what I say with my words. 
Number three, I got to adjust my perspective. And I've got to, I got to stop looking at, so well not stop, I've got to refuse to only look at the inconvenience I'm experiencing. And say, now God, obviously you and me see where I am differently. I thought I was doing great. Obviously, we're not on the same page. So that I don't have to repeat this, show me what you want to fix. Just go ahead and show me. And then last but not least, accept Ananias' assistance. Ananias was a man that would have been the man that Paul took as a prisoner. Remember, he was looking for people to, he would have been that man. Ananias represents the help you wouldn't be open to receiving unless you were in crisis. He represents the person or the people God uses to break your false sense of hyper-independence. Because Paul never needed anybody until now. And there's a crisis that hits your life that you cannot survive without community. You need Ananias. And you got to accept Ananias' help. I want to pray for some people who are going through right now. I want to pray for some people who are trying to make sense out of what you went through. There's some things I went through. I still don't know what God did in them. There's some stuff I can point to and say, I grew from that. And then there's other stuff and say, I guess I grew. I don't know. I'm sure I grew. I just, God just didn't let me in on. God commits to do a thing. He never, he didn't commit to let me in on everything he's doing. So I'm going to pray for some people. But life is lifing right now. And you're thinking, if I wouldn't have did that at prom in high school, this would have never happened to me. You're going all back through in your life because you're trying to find a reason. God is just. Life is not fair. Life's not fair. So, Father, I pray for people right now who are in this room, right now, who are watching online, every location who in a season of suffering that doesn't make sense I pray that you give us the wisdom and the resilience to extract from seasons of adversity assets that will lead us to the life we actually want Give us the grace to handle seasons that we did not choose, but seasons that chose us. And we declare, if we sow in tears, we refuse not to reap in joy. In Jesus' name, amen. It takes what it takes. <clears throat> Listen to me.